This is Perspectives on Justice. We look at the most current and controversial issues in the U.S. justice system. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr., and I invite you to join me in exploring how the scales of justice are balanced, criminally, socially, and ethically. You are listening to Perspectives on Justice. Welcome back to Perspectives on Justice. You are in for a special episode today. We are highlighting trailblazing black women in celebration of Women's History Month. This and every March, we commemorate and celebrate the vital role of women in American history, like Sojourner Truth and Rosa Parks. While those women made considerable contributions to the advancement of black people today, uh, I want to highlight three powerful and influential black women right here in my community. Today's discussion features these influential women who are the first African-American women to hold top positions in their respective career fields. First is the Honorable Sheila Renee Tillerson Adams, the Circuit Administrative Judge of the Seventh Judicial Circuit, which covers Charles County, Prince George's County, St. Mary's County, and I believe Calvert Counties in Maryland. Uh, Judge Adams, thank you for joining us today on Perspectives on Justice. Thank you for having me. All right. Now, uh, let me say this before we get to the questions, Judge Adams. In, in every public position that you have assumed, I've been so proud and I've recognized that you have achieved and excelled in whatever you've been asked to do. And so uh, let's talk a little about your background first. Uh, how did you uh, get to become the circuit administrative judge? Well, I was... Uh appointed to the district court in 1993, and I stayed there to, to 1996. I was elevated to the circuit court in 1996, where I served as an associate judge of the circuit court until 2010, when my predecessor, the Honorable William D. Missouri, retired. And at that time, he recommended me to then-Chief Judge Robert M. Bell to assume the position of the administrative judge for Prince George's County and the Seventh Judicial Circuit of Maryland. And I've served in that capacity since September 4th of 2010. Well, let me say, knowing Judge Missouri, uh, he would not have recommended you unless uh, he had the utmost confidence, as I do, in you. Now, uh, Judge Adams, uh, the Seventh Judicial Circuit, uh, is that five counties? It's actually four. It's Charles, Calvert, St. Mary's and Prince George's. And Prince George's. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so they're of uh, uh, four. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, do you ride the circuit? Uh, what what does that entail? No, you know, there used to be a time when um, when the circuit courts of the the counties and the states were first um, created. That the, there was like one judge in the circuit, and they would sit in the different courts. But that's no longer the case. Well, strike that. In some jurisdictions, there's still one judge. 
in some of the smaller jurisdictions, like on the eastern shore of Maryland. But in Prince, in the Seventh Judicial Circuit, there are judges assigned in each county, and in fact, there is an administrative judge in each county. And I just am the circuit administrative judge, meaning that I am charge of coordinating all of the legal act and judicial activities in all of the courts. But I do consult with and work with each of the administrative judges for the counties. Now, uh, four counties, Judge Adams, that uh, sounds like that's over a million uh, people and citizens who reside in these four counties. Uh, tell us uh Tell us how you manage uh, your your job as the circuit overseer of four counties. Well, like I said, each county has an administrative judge, and each county has associate judges. And what I do is I meet with the administrative judges of those counties regularly. Since the pandemic, we've been meeting weekly on a weekly conference call, in addition to our Seventh Circuit meetings. But the, the real work is done in our weekly conference calls. And, and we I oversee like the, the budgets of those jurisdictions, making sure their facilities are in place, making sure there's consistency in the way that we, we administer justice in these um, in this Seventh Circuit in terms of different case types or protocols or procedures. Um, so there's a lot of coordination with me and each of the administrative judges of the Seventh Circuit to make sure that we are conducting things consistently in the Seventh Circuit. Now, with the understanding that each county is different, for example, in there's 24 judges in Prince George's County where there's only three in Calvert because it's a much smaller jurisdiction. So obviously the practices in those jurisdictions are going to be a little different when you're dealing with caseload for three judges as opposed to caseload for 24. Sure, sure. Well, let's focus on uh, the big one, uh, Prince George's County. I think I just heard you say there were 24 judges, and it just seems like that's a lot of responsibilities that you have in setting hearings and trials and jury pools and uh, again, uh, you've got to have bench meetings. You've got to oversight the budget and space and all of that. Uh, uh, tell us about the things uh, you do on a, on a normal week or, or daily basis. Well, during um, in running the court, there, there, all of what you said is what I do. I coordinate the budget for this court. You know, we're we're a budget of over eighteen million dollars running this courthouse in addition to a, a, a CIP budget, which we use to improve the facility. But we have to coordinate the, the case types. I have appointed a coordinating judge for civil, criminal, family, and foreclosure so that we can adjust and put, and put specific attention to each case type. Additionally, we have five divisions that coordinate specific things like our family division, our problem-solving court division, the um, IT division, court reporters, and then have a whole court administrative staff because it's important that we provide the services to our citizens, that we schedule the cases so that cases can be heard timely because the last thing you want to do is prepare for a trial, come to court, and then we don't have a judge to hear your case. So I take it very seriously when a case is set that and parties come to court, 
to have their cases heard, that we have the staff and the judges ready to hear your cases. So there's a lot of coordination of all those activities to make sure that we can provide the services that we need to the community. In addition, you know, the court doesn't do this by itself. We have to work in collaboration with the elected clerk of the court because the clerk of the court is our main judicial partner in terms of providing the services to the community. In addition, I have to work collaboratively with the state's attorney, the public defender, and the bar association, in addition to the Department of Corrections and law enforcement, to make sure that the system works smoothly in order to serve the public. So all those matters that is, uh, is, 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 is within my bailiwick to coordinate. Wow, that's uh, quite a lot. And would you uh, uh, let the listeners know, are you the first African-American woman to ever be uh, named the administrative judge for the large county, Prince George's County? I'm the first woman and first African-American woman to ever hold this position, correct? All right. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you also was the first black woman ever appointed to a judge in Prince George's County. Is that right? That is correct. In All 1993. Right. <laughs> All right. Great. Now, uh, let me uh, ask you about any uh, challenges that you faced uh, in your career getting to where you are. Uh, do, do you have anything that uh, sticks out that may have been challenges that you had to overcome to get where you are now? You know, um, it's funny because I'm, I'm asked that question from time to time, and I really don't think of things as challenges. Now, I've had many opportunities to learn when things didn't go the way that I originally planned for them to go. But I was taught early on in life that, you know, you look at what people perceive as failures as opportunities to learn, failures as ways to turn things into successes. So there have been many times along the way that things didn't go as I planned, but I didn't look at it as um I should say, challenges or failures. I looked at it as opportunities to learn, opportunities to grow. And I've had many such opportunities to grow along these lines. Like, for example, you know, judgeship, I, I applied for judgeship on more than one occasion and I was told no. Um, you know, I, I didn't pass the bar the first time. So that was a challenge. Um, there, there's certain things along the way that you go through, but you, you just don't stop, you work harder. And this is uh, something I know our listeners was very, very interested in, that you you don't stop. And, of course, uh, many people in your position, Judge Adams, who've been the first, there's always been uh, stereotype questions or questions uh, kind of hinting on a lack of qualifications or ability. Uh, have you ever run into any of that? And if you have, uh, how have you handled it? You know, there, there are always stereotypes or are or people look at you differently when you don't look like the greater community. And there was a time when Prince George's County, the greater community did not look like me. So when I first came to this county, it did not look like me. So th there were times, particularly when I was a young prosecutor, when I walk into the courtroom and um, the defense counsel thought I was the clerk or someone other than the prosecutor. But the reality of it for me, I did not, um, that was their issue and not mine because I was very confident in my abilities. I was very confident in the training that I got from Howard University School of Law and from Morgan State University and very confident from the upbringing I had in the District of Columbia because that's where I went to 
my primary education. So, and the upbringing that I had from my family. And, you know, I think we as, as people in this community, when you are surrounded with love and when you're surrounded with people and continuing to tell you, you can do anything you put your mind to, it gives you confidence. And that's what I think we have to give to our young people, confidence to know that you can do whatever you want to do, whatever you put your mind to. So when people have their own stereotypes, I look at it as their problem, not mine, because I know what my job is. I know what I've been trained to do. And I know what I'm very confident what my abilities are. Well said. All right. Uh, uh, let me ask you about your mentors. Have you had any mentors that you've looked to that help you in, in your career climb? I've had many mentors, and I'm talking to one of them right now. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Who told I, was, I, was, I was hoping. I was hoping you would say Who that. Told you, me you, you, when I was a young lawyer but, in, in law school, you need to come to Prince George's County. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to Prince George's County. But I remember when I was working in Baltimore and I had been there for two years and I decided I wanted to go back to graduate school and I needed a day job. And I called you and I said, at the time you were a judge, you were Professor Williams. I said, Professor Williams, you always talk about Prince George's County and I'm going to back to Georgetown and I need a day, day job. And I'm looking for something closer to the District of Columbia. Any ideas? You said, you need to come to Prince George's County. I'm going to get set you up with an interview with Bill Marshall in the state's attorney's office. <laughs> and I came down to that interview, and I had never been up in Marlboro at that time. And I came down here. And at that time, well, it didn't look much different than it does now, but at that time, since I had never been here before, and it was just a one-light town with a 7-Eleven or a high store at the time, I thought to myself, did he send me to Mayberry or what? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember going to the interview and calling you after interview and say, there's no way I'm going to work in that little town. Yeah. And you told me that people are knocking down the doors to get in that office. And if you're fortunate enough to get an offer, you better take it. You uh, reminded me of something I almost forgot, but uh, they were exciting times. Uh, let me ask you about another possible uh, mentor. You talked about uh, Howard University. What has the election of Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, uh, uh, has that had any impact on you? Yeah, similar to when Bar Barack was elected, just just, just a co constant reaffirmance that we can do anything. We can do anything as a people. And for young women and for my young daughters and for young women everywhere, that there's there's no limit to what we can do. All right. couple more questions, Judge Adams. Uh uh, there's a number of women, I suspect, young women in their 20s, I suspect, who are listening to this. Uh, what advice would you give them uh, as they swing into the adult life? Uh, some of them have to balance school and family life and home life and career. What, what advice can you give to them as they struggle with trying to put all this together? I would tell them to, especially young women in their 20s, when you're juggling up, a family, a job, your career, and, and you have small kids, I want you to take a deep breath and let you know and, and understand that we are, we are perceived as superwomen, but we are women. And you need to establish and find your network of support that can help you through this. You know, when we come out and we want to be professional and be in this job 
you need to find that net, that network, but also realistic work work environment that enables you to express yourself and to utilize your talents. But when you have small children, also realize that sometimes you will get overwhelmed. That's why that support network is so important, whether it be support network with your other girlfriends or with your family and friends that can assist you along the way. Your children must come first, but you can do this. You can do family and the profession as long as you keep a balance in your life and you must keep a balance in your life that is so important to you professionally and is so important to you for the support of your of your children because they must come first. So just remember that you you can um, you can do it all, but doing all requires planning and a network of support. Well, Judge Adams, uh, we are so uh, proud of you, and uh, I personally feel so good about uh, you and all of the great things you're doing. And so I would tell my listeners, uh, you've heard some powerful words uh, today from Judge Sheila Renee Tillerson Adams, the Circuit Administrative Judge of the Seventh Judicial Circuit of Berlin. Judge Adams, thank you so much for sharing those wonderful words and congratulations to you on uh, uh, Women's Week and for all that you've done uh, in Maryland. Thank you. Thank you. And it's so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, welcome back. Uh, we are here talking about Women's History Month and some of the exciting people we've had on. Uh, again, uh, our next guest is... Uh, Alicia Wilson. Uh, Alicia is the Vice President of Economic Development for Johns Hopkins University and the Johns Hopkins Health System. Welcome, Ms. Wilson, and happy Women's History Month. Thank you so much, Judge Williams. Um, it is really an honor to be here today, and uh, thank you. happy Women's History Month to you. All right, great. That's right. Uh, absolutely. Well, let me uh, start off by saying uh, I begin to have a little more presence in Baltimore. And let me say, uh, Alicia, that wherever I go, everyone says you really have to get in contact with uh, Alicia Wilson. Uh, you are revered throughout of Baltimore and the state. And I want to uh, put that oh, uh, so <laughs> right now in your head so you'll know that. Oh, but... But anyway, uh, tell me about this role of uh, vice president of economic development uh, uh, that you're serving right now. Tell us about that. No, absolutely. And, and thank you for that. It's very kind of people to um, say that about me, and I really appreciate it. And the role at Hopkins, um, I've been in the role of vice president of economic development for about almost two years. Uh, and the role really is centered around uh, how does the transformational and dynamic um, nature of Johns Hopkins impact um, not only its patients, um, its students, but its community at, um, and its community in the broadest sense. And so within my portfolio is to think about, um, to work in tandem with our real estate team around where are we in making real estate investments where are we being additive in projects that maybe are not um, Johns Hopkins' own projects? Uh, how are we growing 
what are, what are our decision-making processes around that? And where are we really trying to drive impact and become a catalyst? Um, I work extremely closely with our procurement teams on both the university and health system sides of the house and um, work around economic inclusion, ensuring that um, we are spending our money to have an impact um, both locally and with minority-owned businesses. I focus a great deal and work very closely with our hiring teams, um, setting goals, uh, making achievements, working around um, employee recruitment, mobility, pipelining, as well as executive leadership positions. And then lastly, I would say also looking at our investment portfolio. So where's our endowment being invested and by whom? So not just the firms, but who are our money managers? What are their race? What's their gender? And how can we maximize every, every spin that we make, every part of our contribution? How can we maximize that in a really to really benefit and have shared prosperity with the community in which we reside. Well, that's uh, quite a lot. Uh, and uh, let me uh, be uh, uh, painfully honest. When you start talking about uh, endowment investments and money managers and spending money and real estate investments and other private projects and that sort of thing, they sound like roles that traditionally have been given to uh uh, white males. Yes. And uh, I, I guess uh, my first question would be, uh, uh, do you find that uh, interesting that uh, you as a uh, black woman would be vested in that role right now? What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think I think in many respects, um, I, I find it interesting, but I also um, recognize and have been able to see sort of what the landscape yields. And so the landscape is full of African-American talent, male and female. It's about who's looking for it and are you prioritizing it? So in many respects, I think that if you seek to find diverse talent, you will find it. Um, and I feel quite honored to be in this position at this moment in time when I think really the um, the shift between sort of um, diversity metrics from just counting widgets to really driving impact and staying around to wait for the answer of whether are we really achieving what we set out to do, really, you know, every institution is being called to question on that. And I, I think it's really important that we have individuals myself in positions of power. So I really, I, I really am honored to be in be here at this time. Well, this certainly, uh, those are positions of power that you have. And, and let's talk a little about your, your background, your professional background. I know you're a lawyer. <laughs> you went to law school, but uh, what was next after law school? And how did you end up uh, there at uh, Hopkins? You know, I've had like such a, such a um, interesting journey. I, I was a Came out of law school, clerked on the circuit court for Baltimore City with Judge David Young in the juvenile division. Then I went to um, work at Gordon Feinblatt, became a partner at about year six, year seven. And um, from there, brought in a, uh, a large client, um, which was the Port Covington Project uh, with Kevin Plank. And that experience really did and I would say Gordon Feinblatt certainly prepared me in many respects 
um, to become a business advisor and to become, you know, an advisor about real estate, an advisor about impact. And my, my, what I would say off the book work, which was always trying to be rooted in community, really positioned me well to be able to really talk between many different worlds that usually don't interplay and to really think through and be able to advise on quite complex deals and come out with a, a solution. And so um, after being at Port Covington, um, negotiating the TIF um, with the city and winning all the approvals, um, I was on the board of Johns Hopkins um, Bayview, um, spoke up during a board meeting, You know, always was very engaged, and went to lunch with President Ron Daniels and was offered the opportunity to create a new office, a new position, a new vision for the institution and the enterprise. And so, you know, a lot of very fortuitous, a lot of grace, a lot of mercy, a lot of folks sponsoring me in rooms of opportunity, I would have to say, got me to where I am. Well, you're so humble, but uh, the president certainly uh, could recognize talent when he saw it. <laughs> but uh, let me uh, let me say this. Uh, one of these days, I'd like to sit with you and get some advice myself on what, what's next in my career. Yeah, we'll talk I'll, about that later. Time, anytime, anytime. <laughs> I'll sit with you. Yeah. Yes. Great, great, great. Now, let me ask you about... Uh, any challenges that you faced uh, along your career path? A lot of the listeners uh, who are trying to become first, and they know there's stereotypes, there's always questions about people wondering how you got there and whether you qualified. Uh, you have any thoughts or any uh, comments you want to give to our listeners, particularly the uh, women uh, who are facing these uh, first uh, uh, type uh, positions. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I I feel quite blessed that I was mentored by a number of people who were first. So um, the concept of having to break through um, has been, was sort of taught to me at a very formative part of my development. I would also say I was very, you know, uh, you know, very fortunate that I had, I would say, white, black, male, female sponsors and mentors that told me what my daddy told me, but affirmed me in this respect that I was brilliant. And not in a way to make you puffed up, but to make in a way that makes you know you never should be broken down uh, and made to feel like you haven't earned and well-earned the positions that you have. I have a girlfriend that um, said this to me, and we were, we, um, I serve on a board for, that talks about pipelining. It's a diverse attorney pipeline program. And it was started by a number of young, all of us are the same age, um, young women. And she said one day to our intern, something I'll never forget and sticks with me. And this is what I would say to young women listening, young men listening, um, you are, five times as smart, three times as capable, and two times as deserving as anyone else. You aren't there because you're pretty. You aren't there for a show. You have earned everything you have. They don't give this stuff away. And so anyone that wants to discredit you or make you feel like you've been given a handout, you worked twice as hard um, and it, uh, to be there. And so own that space 
and also reckon own the space, but also know that it is for rent in the sense that it is incumbent upon you to ensure that while you might be the one, that you're not the only. Um, and, you know, just build a legacy where others can enter not one by one, but 10 by 10. And that's really, I think, important for, you know, folks who are starting in their career or even at the midpoint of their career to recognize. Our listeners should understand we're talking to Alicia Wilson, Alicia Wilson, uh, and she just told us something about self-esteem that we all need to remember <laughs> from that standpoint. Uh, now, uh, Alicia, let me... Uh, uh, ask you about uh, advice you can give to young women in particular, since we're talking about Women's History Month, yes. who are maybe in their early 20s, just getting into the swing of being an adult. Mm -hmm. They have to balance school and work and maybe a uh, family or other educational career moves. What, what, what uh, general advice, uh, other than what you've already given them, can you uh, say to them right now who may be listening? Yeah, no, I, I, the advice I would give is advice that um, one of my mentors, Ava Elias Booker, gave me when I was that age. So I'm going to give you the same advice she gave me, which I found to be true. Um, it is hard to achieve balance. It's actually not, I don't think you can achieve balance. I think what you can achieve is harmony, right? Just like a beautiful note, uh, sheet of music, you're trying to achieve harmony. And so at certain points, certain notes are going to be higher then others, certain things are going to be more pronounced, and that's okay because the melody can't all be A, can't be all B, can't be all C. You will have a flow throughout life. And so while you might all want it all now, you can't have it all now. You have to be harmonious in the buildup of the music and the, the sheet music. And so try to achieve harmony, right? So you are someone who is in school. Focus on being in school, but also know that you're not going to feel fulfilled if you don't do something in community. Add a little bit in um, and maybe add it in a, in a way that it allows for it to harmonize with your schooling. Add your fun things in in a way that harmonizes with what is the most pronounced note. And if you do that, you will realize that you don't have to have the song all play out in one year. The song is going to play out over the course of your life. And what you want to make sure is that the melody is good um, at the outset. So, you know, that's just, I just think it's important to recognize how to blend your life so it's harmonious in the life that you want to live. We're talking to Alicia Wilson, uh, again, the Vice President of Economic Development for Johns Hopkins University and the Johns Hopkins Health System. I uh, want to just ask a couple more questions, Alicia. Uh, sure. Uh, one, uh, the research I've done shows that even though women outpace men in higher education and they still are not making as much as their male counterparts. And I'm just wondering whether you have any thoughts on gender uh, pay gap. So a couple of things. One, I think um, gender pay gap in many ways is fueled by um, a couple of different factors. One, when we start a position, um, it's about what we ask for. And... I find, and I'm, you know, on the receiving end of this, men ask for more. 
They ask for the bonus when it has never been offered. They ask for $10,000 on top of whatever offer you make them. They are just aggressive. And I would say for women, be aggressive. Like, ask for the bonus. What's the worst they can say? No. Um, ask for, don't take the offer that they give you. Um, and also, for women, many times when we're assessing a pay, we sometimes will go to our friend. Well, if we go to our friends, all the women are underpaid. So we all, are, our vision is off. Um, go ask a white man. I mean, seriously, I'm being, not, I know it sounds facetious, but really understand the marketplace. Understand what the market is bearing for white men and ask for that and call the question. And I think that's really important, the research around what are they being paid how are people being compensated and being willing to ask for the money uh, is really important. Well, my goodness, uh, I need to be more aggressive. I need to go ask for a raise. <laughs> go ask for a raise. Go ask for the bonus. You know? I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Ms. Wilson, I, I want to say that you're a star in the ascension based on your young age, but you've already arrived. And, uh, no. I, guess the, I guess the last question, uh, do you have any additional career goals you want to share with our listeners uh, before we close? Um, you know, I, I my greatest career goal is that my career not only make me a success, but make me significant for folks in my community. Um, at the end of the day, if I, at my end of my career, have made a lot of money, but not a lot of mentees that could take my job, if I've, you know, scaled the heights and have a beautiful title, but I haven't ensured that others could, could do the same, um, I don't think I will have been significant. I'll certainly have been a success, but not significant. So I think my next goals are to always be open to opportunities, um, uh, always to be growing, um, and always to ensure that whatever platform that I have, whatever role I have, that it inures to the benefit of my community. Um, and that uh, it's my success is not just my personal one, that what, but others can feel a part of it and share it and feel that they are growing alongside me. All right, uh, Alicia Wilson, uh, again, the Vice President of Economic Development for Johns Hopkins University and the Johns Hopkins Health System. Uh, Ms. Wilson, thank you so much for joining us today on Perspectives on Justice. Oh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Judge. I really appreciate this opportunity. Did you know Women's History Month began in 1981 when Congress passed legislation that authorized and requested the president to proclaim the week beginning March 7, 1982, as Women's History Week. Over the next several years, Congress worked to pass resolutions, ultimately resulting in March being designated Women's History Month. The National Women's History Alliance, or History Alliance, chooses a theme each year. Since many of the women's suffrage centennial celebration originally scheduled for 2020 were canceled because of the pandemic, the National Women's History Alliance is extending the annual theme for 2021 to Valiant Women of the Vote, 
refusing to be silenced. Sticking with this year's theme, here are some key black women in women's suffrage movement, more commonly known as the fight to vote. One, Gertrude Bustill Moselle wrote a column in the New York Freeman newspaper. Her first article, Women's Suffrage, was published in 1885 and encouraged women to read about suffrage history and women's rights. Two, Ida B. Wells worked with white suffrage in Illinois and founded the Alpha Suffrage Club, which was the first suffrage group for black women. Number three, Mary Church Terrell was a founding member of the NAACP and the National Association of Colored Women. She was also a member of Delta Sigma Theta and the sorority's first act of public service was participating in the Women's Suffrage March in 1913. Number four, after the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, giving women the right to vote, black women could vote in elections and hold political offices, but many states still had laws that discriminated against black people, making it hard for them to go to the polls and cast their ballot. That's why educator and political advisor Mary McLeod Bethune formed the National Council of Negro Women in 1935 to push for civil rights. Finally, the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965 highlighted more than a century of work by black women to make voting easier and more equitable for all. So there it is, a quick history lesson on vital role black women play in the fight for voting rights. All right, uh, welcome back to Perspectives on Justice. Uh, we're looking uh, this session at Women's History Month. So joining me now is Midshipman First Class Sydney Barber. And so Midshipman Barber, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Perspectives on Justice. Well, Judge, thank you very much for having me. It's such an honor to be here. All right. Now, uh, now Sydney, uh, you, of course, uh, you're brigade commander, which is the highest leadership billet at the U.S. Naval Academy. And I believe you're the first black female midshipman to hold this position in the Academy's 175-year history. And so with that uh, background, uh, can you tell us a little about your, your own background and what led you or how you came about to be at the Naval Academy? Yes, of course. I, I would love to. So um, I I started off, so I'm from, I'll take it back to, to where I'm from. I'm from Lake Forest, Illinois, which is a north suburb of Chicago. And so I grew up in a, in a pretty small town. And for most of my life, I had no interest in wanting to be in the military, no interest in wanting to come to the Naval Academy. It was but it was the last thing on my mind for for most of my childhood. Um, but in a, a lot of the time growing up, I, I was really interested in sports and I loved to play soccer. I love I ha used to have a dream. I wanted to be a professional soccer player or 
um, just be a professional athlete or something like that. I was always infatuated with um, pro- professional athletes and would love to watch them on TV. But it wasn't until sometime in my middle school, when I was in middle school, I went on a mission trip. I went on a tri- trip with my church to the inner city of Chicago, um, a very Im- impoverished area. And I spent a week there um, and we went to different homeless shelters with different soup kitchens and community centers. And I just remember how fulfilled I came, I was on that trip and just the opportunity to serve and give back and I, um, and just be able to pour more back into the world um, than, than I was taking out of it. And, and at the time I was only about 12 years old, but I was just overjoyed with, with a feeling of this um, just, love for um for service and um ever ever since then i continue going on trips with my church i went to uh the dominican republic i went to india i went to different i went to a date in ohio to an african refugee community and uh, i went there several times in a row and it was on those trips that i really I, i found that my passion was to to serve and um and to to use my life to, to serve others in, in the best way possible and pursue a career in service. So when the time finally came around my junior year of high school, I I was looking for opportunities to continue to, to pursue my career um, and, and also align the, some of the, my strengths that I had. And I still wanted to, to continue to do well in sports and, and pursue a, a career that would allow me to, to keep up with um, staying, staying physically fit and also get an education. And the stars really aligned my junior year of high school when I went to the Naval Academy for the first time. I remember I stepped on campus and I knew that it was the right place for me. Um, just the right opportunity for me to, to get to get a great education, but more importantly, pursue a career in service. So that's why I, I, I came here and I applied to the Naval Academy. Once I got in, I didn't look, I didn't apply to anywhere else. I, I just, I didn't look back because this was where I knew was the best place for me. What uh, what a story, and uh, I'm going to ask you a few other things later about that, but I'm uh, interested right now, I know the listeners would also be interested, what is your, your role as the, uh, the the highest leadership uh, position there uh, as the midship and first class? Yeah, so right now I'm the brigade commander, which is essentially at a civilian school be equivalent to a student body president. So I oversee all 4,500 midshipmen within the brigade, and I'm the liaison between the brigade of midshipmen and the commandant. So is he's kind of like our our school principal, um, is is what we would have, or our um, that that we would compare to a civilian school. So I I meet with I have a, a staff of about 30 people that I, I meet with on a regular basis. I also meet with the commandant and several senior officers on, on a weekly basis, most times, several times a week. And we talk about um, just how things are progressing within the brigade, updates that I have for him, uh, any any issues that, that I'm seeing, any issues that my staff is seeing. And we just, we kind of keep keep working through them together. So it's a, it's a, a dual role of representing the brigade and also being the link to the commonal. Now, I heard you, I think I heard you right. Did you say 4,500 midshipmen? Yes, Judge, that's that's correct. <laughs> my, my, my. How do you balance your time? It's very difficult. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Definitely um, in a time like this, because I still have obligations with school 
um, in addition to obligations with various meetings or, or if an, an issue comes up, you're essentially responsible for it. Um, in addition to, I'm also on the track team, so um, pursuing my sport and all the all the other obligations I have. It's balancing it is something that I've learned. Um, I've learned over the course, I think that over the course of the four years that I've been at the Academy has been preparing me for this moment, um, helping me to, to, to learn how to balance it, how to, to keep everything all afloat. But definitely it's not an easy feat. I, I will tell you that. I can imagine. Uh, uh, now I want to go back and talk about the uh, influences or the mentors uh, in your career planning. And obviously you had a uh, family uh, was behind you and I don't know whether you have any, a family history of military service, but uh, but beyond your faith, uh, the influences from your faith community as well as your passion for sports. What else was there out there, including family, that influenced you to to do so well? Yes, I'd say my family had a significant influence on me growing up. Um, particularly, my my dad has always been someone that's been a role model to me. He also he was a Naval Academy graduate, and um, I would say that because of that, for most of my life, I wanted to, to do something else. I didn't want to come to the academy because I wanted to pursue my own path. But um, I, I soon realized later on in my life that all of the things that I looked up to um, within my dad, his his love for service, his selflessness, um, his devotion to others were all attributes that he acquired during his time at the Naval Academy. And um, that became more evident to me the more that I started looking into the school and, and started uh, looking into, or once I finally came here, I, I realized I had more of an understanding and appreciation for he was, for who he was and realized why he is the person that he is. Um, so that's all of those attributes and that love for service, I definitely um, can attribute to to him and, and the way that he raised me and, and my, my mom, both of them, the way that they raised me in many ways. I'd say probably the biggest influence that I have in my life is my younger brother, though. So my younger brother, his name is Justin. Uh, he was born blind, deaf, and handicapped. And when he before he was born, he... he my parents were advised to get an abortion. And after he was born, they told him, they told, they said that he had essentially two days to two years to live. But um, this past May, we just celebrated his 19th birthday. And for me, he, he reminds me that every single day is a blessing and there's not a day that's guaranteed. And that I, I mean, I have to make the most of every day because, um, you know, you, you never know what tomorrow will bring. Um, he's always a sense, a, a source of joy for my family, source of joy for, um, every, any person that interacts with him. So it, for me, he, he's a, an emblem of hope. And it, that's something that inspires me, um, through that has inspired me my entire life. And especially during this time right now. What, uh, what, a, what, what a wonderful story that you've told us, uh, and that's uh, very, very impressive. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, I have a, a couple other questions. Uh, I'm sure there's a number of listeners who are tuning in, and they're, they're wondering uh, in situations where you are a first, 
And there's always uh, questions out there about whether you're qualified or stereotyped or associated with you being uh, the first. Uh, I'm just wondering uh, whether you faced uh, any uh, uh, pressures like that that you'd have to overcome and uh, resist and, and so forth. Can you share any uh, information on that? Yes, uh, I would say I, I get I get comments all the time, and th those kind of critiques. There's always going to be opposition, especially being a first, uh, being a first, especially being a, a first black female. Anything um, people are always going to say that because of that, they're going to hear that title, and it'll be the the end of the story, and they won't really look past um, those those two words, black and female, and um, to to evaluate you and your character and your merit, um, the, all the things that brought you to this point. So I've definitely in in the few months that I or that I've been in this position, I've definitely had people question my merit, um, had people question the optics of of why I was selected and whether or not it was it was a PR stunt or if if it was because I, I really had what it took or if there were other people who were better suited to to take this job. Um, but you know, with that, I take that and. I kind of that that's just something that motivates me because then you know the only thing that there's not my my job isn't necessarily to to fight back um with my words but more so my actions and prove them wrong with my performance and and how how I lead and and how how I do during in this role and I know that that my performance right now sets a precedent for all those who are coming after me and um and it also is is representative of, of carrying on a legacy of all those who came before me. So uh, I know that I, I pretty much during, during this job right now, I have a lot of eyes on me and I know that I, I essentially have to lead beyond without any reproach. And, um, not to say that I have to be perfect because I know that there's not a single person that's um, perfect on this earth, but that's some, that's, that's kind of a pressure that um, sometimes I put on myself is that every time I step out of my room that you never know what, what someone may be thinking in their head, whether they're someone that is very supportive of you or, or very critical of you. But um, I always just err on the side of caution and just do my absolute best in everything that I can do. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, uh, I think uh, the listeners uh, understand that. Uh, uh, Sydney, uh what advice uh, can you give to, let's say, high schoolers and others who are considering the military, but may be on the fence right now? Oh well, if they if they may be on the fence, what I would say is number one thing is to pursue your passions, pursue the thing that gets you up in the morning, that um, keeps you up at night, um, the thing that kind of gives gives you butterflies in your stomach. Um, th those are the things that that drive your purpose, drive. Um, the direction that is, is intended for you in your life. And nobody else can tell you what exactly what that is because only you know um, for yourself what that is. Um, but I, I would say to, to one, identify, to identify what those things are. And, and then in, in that pursuit, don't let anybody stop you in getting to, in, in achieving the, the vision and the, and the dream that you have for yourself, um, the, the, the goal that you set out to do. And in pursuit of that goal, it's, it's not going to come over. It may not come overnight. Um, 
I, but I would say that your the most valiant pursuit that you can have is to do your absolute best every single day and to strive every day to be better than you were the day before. So um, whether you want to be in the military or you want to pursue a career in government or, or anything else that, that, you know, brings you passion and joy and lights you up and makes you pick, um, always pursue it with all of your heart and, and don't let anybody tell you that, that it's not meant for you if you know that it is in your heart. Well, what a powerful piece of advice. Uh, we're talking to, uh, uh, again, uh, Sydney Barber, who is the brigade commander and the midshipman first class uh, in charge of some 4,500 uh, midshipmen. Uh, let me uh, just ask uh, one or two additional questions. Um, uh, what's your reaction to the election and inauguration of Kamala Harris as vice president? Uh, well, I, I think this that's definitely it's representative of a, a season of change and um, a, a new tide of, of just a, a historical moment altogether. Um, I think that 2020 has been a year of firsts in in many ways. Um, one, because of our, the election of our vice president, um, among other very significant, significant feats um, of women and minorities and um, just, just achieving things that we had never thought or imagined would ever, we would ever see before. So um, for, for Vice President Harris to have been elected in the same year that um, I, I was selected as brigade commander. It's definitely an honor. It's definitely humbling, and um, it, it makes me feel very proud to be a part of a, 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 momentous, a momentous season of American history as a whole. Well, we couldn't have had uh, anyone better to uh, talk about uh, pursuing your passion, and this is Brigade Commander and Midshipman First Class Sidney Barber, who has given us some wonderful comments and reflections today. And I would simply tell you that uh, you are so refreshing just to hear. And uh, again, uh, you've done a tremendous service for your country, and we thank you for it. Uh, I want to personally thank you for joining with me today on Perspectives on Justice. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Judge. It's been great talking to you this afternoon. And so we have it on this Women's History Month. We've had some exciting guests. They have challenged us, and they told us that we need to, first of all, believe in ourselves and then understand that we have great mentors in family and other role models. The bottom line is that we must pursue our passions. Women, stick with your goals. Have confidence and never be broken down. Own your space because your hard work has deserved it. I want to thank my guests, Judge Sheila Renee Tillerson Adams, Brigade Commander, Midshipman First Class Sidney Barber, and Alicia Wilson, Vice President of Economic Development for Johns Hopkins University. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, be sure to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. Until next time.